be seated. Well, if you could turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 11, Gospel of Luke chapter 11. It's good to see each one here in the Lord's house. And we're glad that everyone is here, as well as some visitors from not too far away that are here with us tonight. Good to see the mongers and others that are with us here. Trust the Lord will bless you. Thankful for, again, the leadership of Dr. Overly and of Mr. Logan Elder as well. Do pray for these young men as they prepare themselves for ministry, that God will help them day by day and equip them more and more. It just came to mind as well as he was praying for the boils that the uh, adoption comes up in two days. Tuesday, I think it is, the 15th of February, if I recall the correct date. So I haven't heard anything more about a change there. So pray for the adoption to be finalized in, uh, on Tuesday in regard to the boils. Keep that before the Lord. Look, chapter 11 is where we are. We've been here now for some time, of course, going through what we have entitled A Class on Prayer with Jesus Christ, the opening 13 verses focusing upon prayer in response, of course, to the desire of a disciple upon seeing Christ pray. He then makes request that the Lord would teach them in the way that they knew John had taught his disciples to pray. So we will read again from verse 1 possibly for the final time, I think, down through the end of verse 13. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. I will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? I shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and encourage our hearts even from its public reading here tonight. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord for His help. Let's look for His enablement in the hearing and receiving of the Word. Our God, we are thankful that we are before one that is 
compassionate toward us in our need. And Father, we pray that Thou wilt look upon us in pity tonight, see all the hearts of Thy people, see the desperate need of many of their souls, and minister powerfully to where they are in a way that no man can. O oh, blessed Spirit, come tonight, give help, give strength. And we pray for those that may be in a condition of unbelief or lacking assurance, that they also may be ministered to in a way that will be transformative, saving or bringing them to a fuller understanding of what Christ has done for them. Basically, Lord, we pray, meet the need of every heart and magnify Christ in our midst. May He be preeminent. May we all know the power of Thy presence. O oh God, do Thy work. Extend Thy kingdom, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've noted already, we've been really bringing the opening 13 verses of Luke chapter 11 all together and titled it as a class on prayer with Jesus Christ. This is a needy subject, as we have noted on many occasions, and our Lord graciously condescends to the need of His disciples on this occasion, and the Spirit of God has seen fit to record it for our benefit as well. Of course, based on last week when we looked at verses 5 through 10, where we're emphasizing the committed exercise of prayer, we've, we've had a number of things, just as I remind you again, verse 1 is the chief example of prayer, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. You have the central elements of prayer in verses 2 through 4, the formula, as it were, what the Lord sets before us, how we can shape and form our prayers is given in those verses. Then, as we looked at last week, the committed exercise of prayer, verses 5 through 10, and as we proceed tonight, we'll look at verses 11 through 13. But, but looking at verses 5 through 10 and considering this this instruction given by the Lord, what we looked at last week, I guess the question that arises, since God hears His children pray and accepts them through the merit of Christ, what place has fervency in prayer? That was on my mind and heart this week as I thought about what I had just preached and continuing in the study here this evening. If He hears His children or we might say, since he hears his children, and accepts them not in their own merit, but the merit of Christ, what place then has fervency? We may even have to step back further and ask, well, what even is fervency? What do we talk about when we refer to fervency? The dictionary says, having or displaying a passionate intensity. Thus, it would seem to me that if we were looking for illustrations of fervency in the Scriptures, especially with regard to prayer, we would think of Jacob. When we come to Genesis 32, on that occasion when he says to the angel, I will not let thee go except thou bless me, that seems to be fervency. It seems to reflect the intensity that he had within his heart. He would not accept no for an answer, therefore displayed a fervency in prayer. Remarking on this event in Hosea chapter 12, we are told in verse 4, speaking of Jacob, yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. So this was the occasion where Jacob here is, is, has power over the angels. Remarkable reflection upon that event so many centuries prior where really Jacob is showing this fervency. He will not accept no for an answer. 
And so he shows fervency there. Now, fervency doesn't have a uniform appearance. It's not like all forms of fervency look exactly the same. Not every fervent prayer looks exactly like the prayer of Jacob, for example. But it does have one thing. It has persistence. That, again, is what our Lord was teaching us as we looked at verses 5 through 10 last week. Persistence. Not giving up. If fervency is anything, it is the fact that we do not give up. Some forms of fervency may be very energetic, very passionate, very physically involved. But they also may not. Would anyone deny the fervency of Hannah when she was in the temple and her lips moved, but she didn't utter any words audibly? But she was persistent. She continued putting the matter before the Lord, the burden of her heart. And when we think about Jacob, of course, going back to that scene and the fervency of his heart, it's not like he didn't do anything himself. He, he sought, on that occasion, of course, he is he's making his way, expecting, anticipating, meeting with Esau and the uh, inevitable anger that still is in his heart. And he does everything he can to try and placate that anger. He sends, I, w- I went back and looked at that chapter and was, well, how many animals actually did he send? And it's over 550. I mean, there there are 550 adult, mature animals that he sends in addition to the the, the young of the camels that were there, however many of those were in addition. At least 550 beasts are sent forward as a peace offering, as it were, to Esau to placate his anger. But even with that, even with that, he did not depend upon the gift. He didn't say to himself, well, I'll do this, and then the rest really is, is inevitable. He, there's no way he'll be angry with me if I give him this great gift. He didn't lose sight, if I, if I can put it this way, he did not lose sight of his own impotence. And so that's why he then prayed. In addition to the gift, he prays. And that's what Jesus is teaching. You come to God... It doesn't remove human responsibility. It doesn't deny the need for things we must do. But we still have nothing. We come to God knowing that we have nothing. And we need divine intervention. It's that sense of weakness and bankruptcy that drives us to persist in prayer. That's what's true of verses 5 through 10. The man will not give up. He, again, verse 6, he says, I have nothing. I don't have anything. He knows his own bankruptcy, and he therefore persists in the endeavor, knocking on the door until the friend comes in response to his request. And so our Lord then is putting before us, as I say, this committed exercise to keep on praying. He underlines it then again in the famous words of verses 9 and 10. I say unto you, this this is hammering the point home. This is when the preacher puts before you the lesson and then he steps back and he kind of works it in a different way, but ultimately the point is the same. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, let me reword the sense of it, Everyone that keeps on asking will receive. He that keeps on seeking will find. To him that keeps on knocking, it shall be opened. The persistence is underlined. 
We have the different aspects, of course, of even coming before God. You've asking, seeking, knocking. There's a sense of one part being the informing, the other part being the inquiring, the other part being the insisting. If you can see it in that kind of way, you're informing God by using words and you're telling Him the desire of your heart. You keep on inquiring at Him until there is this response. And with no response, you will insist by knocking until you get the response that you're seeking for. This kind of persistence is, is unusual. Again, our prosperity seems to make us lazy. But as I again was studying over this this week, as an experience in my own life, not of my own persistence, but someone else's, came to mind here. And just before we proceed into verses 11 through 13, I, th- I want to share it with you. It was 2018, and I went with a group to Scotland to visit some of the parts, the various uh, historical places of historical significance in terms of the church and men who lived there and ministered and preached and so on. And we are, we're moving through this well-known area, uh, traveling on to get to our hotel through the, the glen, a glen called Glencoe. It's, it's well-known. If you've ever been to Scotland, you may know about it. Uh, it's used in movie sets. The scenery is absolutely stunning, providing that it's not all shrouded in fog <laughs> and you actually can see, uh, which we had the privilege of having very uh, favorable weather. And it's just this, these stunning hills and valley, uh, absolutely beautiful. We're, we're moving through there. And the designated photographer is there, and we, we've stopped, and he's taking pictures, and he's gone way down into where there's a little creek and he's trying to take pictures. I don't know what photographs he's taking, but he's trying to take pictures. And he, he kind of falls in the creek and, you know, gets up and moves on and so on and so forth. And time passes. We go up. We're, 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 there's this hired bus, 50-something-seater bus. And we get on the bus. We move on to our next stop. We're at the hotel. The bus goes away to wherever the bus driver was, was staying. And the photographer who was there, all of a sudden realizes that he's lost his wedding band. Very simple wedding band, not expensive, but it mattered to him. It was the band that reflected the marriage between he and his wife, and he was deeply upset that he had lost this wedding band. And he starts thinking back, where is it? Where could it have gone? And he goes in and back in his mind, and he thinks, it must have come off my hand when I fell into the creek that time. It must have slipped off my finger, and that must be where it is. I need to go back and get it. Well, by this stage, the, the, already the light is starting to, to go away. The bus driver's gone. There's no way of actually getting there. And so we're talking with him, and he says, well, I'll, I'll just get a taxi and go out there. And it must have. It was probably at least a $200 round-trip taxi drive, probably more than the actual wedding band was worth. But, but he, 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 before he left, we all prayed, the Lord lead him and be with him. And so off he got, he got into a taxi, went himself to the place where we had stopped, and he went down, you know, like a quarter of a mile down into the valley, to the stream, the light's fading quickly, and he's in this stream, praying that God would help him find this, this wedding band. And he's searching and searching and searching. And he, when he came back, obviously he told the story that it was sitting upright, like on its edge, in the stream. 
And he just put his hand right on it and lifted it out, got back up the hill, into the taxi and came back. I was absolutely flabbergasted. I thought, there's no way he is ever going to see that wedding band again. But he did. And you think of that kind of perseverance. That's what the Lord's encouraging. A rational man would say, don't bother. He would look at the cost and everything involved, and he said, don't even try. It would be wiser from certain aspects to just, to just find another wedding band, and one hopefully that would fit a little better, <laughs> and, and, and just, just forget about it. You could maybe change it, and your wife wouldn't even know. But the Lord loves this kind of perseverance. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we move on to the last few verses in what our Lord is teaching us here, because it's all connected when we come to verse 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more Shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Which brings us then this evening to the confident expectation of prayer. If verses 5 through 10 put before us a clear explanation of man's part in prayer, verses 11 through 13 put before us a clear explanation of God's part in prayer. And there are two things I want us to think about here in terms of this expectation. First, Our expectation is that God, as our Heavenly Father, will do no less than earthly fathers. Our expectation is that God, as our Heavenly Father, will do no less than earthly fathers. Now, obviously, there are fathers that abandon their duty. There are fathers that don't step up to what their responsibilities are. And there's no care, no interest. But generally speaking... Fathers have an interest in their children. Despite their flaws, they seek to meet the need of their children. They're not perfect. The passage even tells us of that. They misjudge circumstances. They display selfishness. They neglect necessary duties. They excuse sin in themselves and show harshness in the sins of others. They have flaws, just like Adam, just like Noah, Abraham, Lot, Jacob, and all the others we could think of through Scripture. Yet, though flawed, it is unusual that should a child ask of a father a cup of water, that that father will return to that child a cup of vinegar. That doesn't happen. Seldom does that happen. Fathers hear the request, and they respond, giving the child what it is that they seek for. And so as earthly fathers understand the need to give that which is necessary and nourishing to their children, this is what we're saying. So will God. That's the point of verses 11 and 12. Our expectation clearly from verse 11 and 12 is that as God is our heavenly Father, He will do no less than earthly fathers. We will not charge Him. We cannot charge Him with doing less than we see Fathers do, even though those fathers may be flawed in many regards. If there's a need for bread, 
The Father's not going to mock by giving a stone. If there's a need or desire for fish, the Father will not hurt by giving a serpent. If there is a request for an egg, the Father will not deceive by giving a scorpion. And I say deceive because of what many believe here as to the the kind of contrast between an egg and a scorpion. John Gill, for example, says, It is said that a scorpion put into an empty eggshell has been used to be given to persons whose death has been desired, which it bursting from at once strikes and kills. That's one way of looking at others. See, they speak of other scorpions that look like eggs or whatever. But the whole point is that looking like it or being hidden in it is the intent to deceive. So you just don't, you just don't get this. The father doesn't mock when the child asks for bread. He doesn't hurt when he asks for fish. He doesn't deceive when he asks for an egg. Fathers don't do this. There's not really much more to add. The simple takeaway from verse 11 and 12 is this. We have an expectation that God as our Heavenly Father will do no less than earthly fathers. So think of your, your whole experience. Consider all that you've known. And yes, there are flaws in fathers. Yes, they often do not step up to the mark of what they are called to do. Yet, they don't do this. They don't give contrary. They don't mock their children by giving that which in no way meets the need or desire of the child. The child asks for bread. The child gets bread if the father can provide it. Ask for fish. Again, it will be given. Ask for an egg. Again, that will be given. Or some helpful substitute. But not a scorpion. Not a serpent. Not a stone. Fathers don't do that. And yet we come to God and we pray. And you'd nearly think that He had no interest in giving us the things that we desire. We approach God. And though we don't articulate it, in our hearts there is this sense, I don't really believe He's interested. Jesus says, you have a certain expectation of earthly fathers. You cannot go away and think less of your Heavenly Father. You can't. But secondly, our expectation is that God, as a perfect Father, will, much, will do much more than earthly fathers. So we've looked at the fact that He will do no less. But since He is perfect, since He is contrasted in verse 13 with fathers that are evil, and He is not then he will do much more than earthly fathers. We don't just stop at the fact, well, he'll do at least what earthly fathers will do. Christ takes it further and says, if ye then being evil know, don't even stop at what they give. Take it higher. Understand the generosity of your God. Now, we often use verse 13 as a proof text for our right to ask for the Holy Spirit and to ask for his help. And there's nothing erroneous about that, but that's, that's not, I don't think that gets the heart of the text. Look at it. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? If evil fathers know 
to give good gifts to their children, what then will a perfect father give? Think of it. Just to stop before we continue. If evil fathers, that is, corrupted by the fall, not in any way perfect by any means or measure, yet they're able to give good gifts. They know to give good gifts. They even desire to give good gifts. What then will a perfect father give to his children? And the answer is more than you realize. You might begin to enumerate in your mind, well, if if they can give good gifts, if they ask for bread, they give bread. If they ask for fish, they give fish. If they ask for egg, they will give an egg. Then maybe our Heavenly Father, if we ask for bread, He'll give multiples of bread. And if we ask for fish, he'll give multiples of fish. Or ask for an egg, he'll give multiples of egg. You might start to think that's, that's the sense of it. He's going to give more in terms of the material. But it is not that. What verse 13 basically says to you, what Jesus says is that as evil fathers give in response to their children good gifts, your heavenly Father will give the best gift. And the best gift is Himself. He will give of Himself. John MacArthur, preaching on this text, puts it this way, You ask for comfort? He gave you the comforter. You ask for help, He gave you the helper. You ask for truth, He gave you the truth teacher. You ask for power, He gave you the spirit of power. You ask for wisdom, He gave you the spirit of wisdom. You ask for guidance, He gave you the guide. This is what verse 13 is putting before us. Not just the things, not just the the product, but the source of all gifts. He's not just giving the things we desire in life. He gives the one who's made all these things, who has the endless power to provide all these things and gives not just all the endless provision of them, but Himself. He Himself. And this is His generosity. Again, you go back to the illustration in verses 5 through 10. It is is put before us the fact that the man asks for loaves. And what does he get? He gets loaves. Eventually, he gets loaves. You ask God for loaves, you don't just get loaves. You get the bread of heaven. You don't, his children don't go away just with bread. They go away with the one who is the very bread of God. And that's, that's the point, that, that don't think that in some way it's limited to just stuff and material things or circumstances. He has given to His children Himself, all of Himself. 
in the person of the Holy Spirit. When we don't know what to do, He gives the Holy Spirit. The one who's present at creation, who gave unusual wisdom and gift to Bezalel and gave power to judges and kings and so on. That, that same one is there for all children of God. He gives Himself. He gives all Himself. Now, that's simple. That's a simple laying out of the text. And I step back and I wonder, do we, are we able to measure just how significant that is? You go to a man of means. A man of means says that he will underwrite your, your project. He will do whatever it is you want him to do. Maybe you're a boss, and you go to him and you say, we need to do this, and he kind of says, look, there's a blank check, go and do whatever you like. And we appreciate that, we, we value that, but, but what is he withholding from us? He gives access to all his resources, but he doesn't give himself. He will not give himself. He is jealous for his own responsibilities, his own desires, his own interests. He doesn't give himself. And God is saying, a father is able to give all these things, give the desire of the heart, provide the needs of the children, the things that are necessary and nourishing to them. But, he, but God does so much more. Your heavenly father, look at it, your heavenly father, you see, it's, it's, it's moved again. It's moved from this sense of friendship, going to a friend, a friend going to a friend. Now it's reminding you here of, of the, the it's, it's elevating the, the picture, the image. Here's a friend who's had a friend come to him, and he goes to another friend. Now he brings it into the whole sense of, of fathers, and the responsibility of fathers is to press upon us that they are even more obligated and your heavenly Father is able to give you not just all the things, not just all the stuff, but Himself. Now, if we are living our lives and they revolve around stuff, we won't care about it. That won't mean anything. Giving the Holy Spirit won't matter to the man who's not interested in the Holy Spirit. The man who's interested in money doesn't care about the Holy Spirit, except about how that Holy Spirit might get him money, as in the case of Simon in Acts chapter 8. He's not interested in the Holy Spirit. He's interested in how he can utilize the Holy Spirit for financial gain and power. We, we are taught, we are taught that we were made for God's pleasure in Revelation 4.11. And when we don't understand that our primary purpose, our chief end is to glorify God, that our lives revolve around pleasing God, obeying God, surrendering to God, walking with God, doing everything that the Lord has called us to do, that's our life. I mean, that is it. Why do you go to work? Because it's obedience to God. A man should work, provide for his family, make ends meet, all of that. 
Why, why, should, why should we do anything? Why do we worship? Because God demands it. Why do we help one another? Because God demands it. Why do we do anything? It ought to be because this is well-pleasing to God. Now, you understand that. I know this congregation is aware of this, but I want you to feel this sense of how much of our lives revolve around the desire for things. We want stuff. And it's not just material stuff. It's, it's friendships or companionship or other, other things that aren't just as tangible, and yet we desire them. There are things outside of God. That's, that's what we prioritize, and that's what we say, I need, I need this to be happy, and that this is something other than God. Right? You're, you're following. I trust you're, you're tracking here. We, we easily fall into this sense where this is what I need, and that this is not God. Okay? And the Lord here is saying, you come looking for this, bread, fish, egg. I'm not interested in giving you just bread, fish, and egg. I'm interested in giving you myself. I say again, unless you realize that your life is first about God, you don't care about this. And so it's actually quite searching. A child comes to a father, makes requests for something, and the father desires something else for the child. And you and I looking on would say, well, what the father wants to give to the child is far more important, far greater than what the child initially requested. And yet the child is discontent because it wants what it wants. And no amount of reasoning with the child will make a difference. The child wants that thing, whatever it is. That's how some Christians live their lives. God is saying, I'm giving you myself, and instead we're running around after the things, other things, other stuff. This is illustrated best, perhaps, by, well, I guess, more than anywhere, the first century church. The Christians that lost everything but had God. They lost family connections. They lost prosperity in their business. No one would, they converted from being Jewish in the classic sense, and following the rabbis and Pharisees, and then they, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And immediately, all the unconverted family members cut them off. They won't buy their wares. They won't talk to them. They won't have anything to do with them. They, they lose everything. So they lose wealth, they lose their family, they lose all sorts of things are lost. And yet we don't find the misery in the book of Acts. We don't find them upset about it. 
We don't read of them lamenting how, how bad this is, how wrongly treated they've been from the outside world. Those who are the leaders among them, those like Paul and so on, they, they, they exhibit this continual joy. They're losing everything, but Peter and John say we, we, that they were delighted that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ. And you imprison them, and midnight they're singing praises to God, Paul and Silas. Why? Why is it that they felt this way? Because their, their hearts were calibrated to understand that our Father has given us Himself. We have God. What else could we long for or be upset about? What place is there for complaint when we have God? I mean, that, that's really the takeaway from verse 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, give stuff, the necessary nourishing things unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? The Holy Spirit, third person of the triune God, comes to those who can say God is our Father. So the repetition then through the New Testament by our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles is, is plain with any cursory study. What is it that they need more than anything else? John 16, verse 7. You may want to look through these scriptures if you like, but you can listen carefully, follow. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. I'm going, I'm going away, but I am sending the Comforter. What was the comfort of the disciples amidst the mockery of an unbelieving world? What was the comfort? Jesus was there, right in their midst, inaccessible. And his interest was toward them, not toward the unbelieving, who repeatedly showed their animosity towards him. And that comforted them. They, they had walked away from their jobs. They had walked away from everything. Perhaps far more sacrifice than the Gospels account to us. But they were content because they had Jesus Christ as advocate with them. And Jesus is saying, I'm going away. And their, their hearts are, are breaking over that thought. He said, but don't worry, don't worry. If I go away, I will send the Comforter. Don't worry, you will be left with the abiding presence of God. He is there, Christian. The, the Holy Spirit is there in your life for all sorts of things. He is there, first and foremost, we might say, to lead you. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8, 14. He is, he is, he is leading. He is right there to lead you through all the steps of life. He is there to remove your fears. Romans 8.15 Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Again, the alleviating fear because of this relationship with God. And the Spirit is there to assure our hearts of the reality of it. He is there to aid us in prayer. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. 
For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And on and on you go. You read of all sorts of things that, that remind us that the Spirit is there to aid the people of God, to be with the people of God, to comfort the people of God, to give them far more than trinkets and stuff. You want friendship? You have the friendship of God. You want companionship? You have the companionship of God. <laughs> you have what you need and more because you say, God is my Father. So we go back to the overall message of the passage. What did they want to be taught? They wanted to be taught to pray. Verse 1, It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Help us understand what prayer is all about. And part of it has a form. The words that we use, the, the, the kind of approach or formula or the, the, the angle that we come at God. There are words that are, are expressions of the heart that He gives to us in verses 2 through 4. But it's more than just being able to pray the words that align with the Lord's Prayer. It's more than just being able to extrapolate all the application or the ways we can the kind of roads we can go down with each of those petitions. There's a need for us to keep on praying, keep persisting, showing a shameless persistence in the matters that we bring before God. And as we bring these matters before God, we are not to think that He is reluctant to hear us. Again, aside from everything that is here, you think of other passages in Scripture. Jesus tells us, in Matthew 21, 22, All things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. I just don't think we believe that. All things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Has anyone, except Jesus Christ, ever fully mined All that that entails and means. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. That is, have a posture where you understand the willingness of your Father to bestow it. And it's almost as if it's already on the way. Don't doubt it. John 14, verses 13 and 14. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If he shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. Did you get it? Do you understand it? If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it.
Now, I know, I know that there's the question that arises, well, how do we understand the will of God? How do I know that what I'm asking is in the center of God's will? Well, in part, it's quite simple. Does your prayer ascend from an understanding of the revealed will of God as it is in the Scriptures? Are you praying in accordance with His will and the tenor of Scripture and the things you see God doing and that which you see God prioritizing? Can your prayer fit in legitimately with the formula given in verses 2 through 4? Is this a desire for the hallowing of the name of God? Is it a petition for His kingdom to come? Is it a longing for His will to be done here on the earth as it is in heaven? Does it fit? Do we pray, and our prayers are born really not from our own carnality, but from the Scriptures? So Jesus says in John 15, verse 7, If ye abide in me, my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So there's a communion that's going on. It precedes all of this. Fellowship, communion, and understanding we grow in our knowledge of God, we grow in our submission to God, we, we abide in Christ, we are living with a desire for Him, we pray, understanding that union and His words are filling our hearts and shaping our lives. Then what we ask, what we're asking flows out of a transformed will, a regenerate heart, a renewed perspective. We want what our Master wants. First John 3.22 Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That's a simplified way of saying you're actually His people and you're living, prioritizing His will. That's, that's the mark of his people. His people want his will. They want what he wants. And so, that being the case, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. <laughs> I know there are some passages and doctrines in Scripture that are up for debate, and people wrestle over getting clarity. What's, what's going to precede the Lord's return? What's going to happen at his return? What's going to occur following his return? When should we expect all this to take place? What characters should we expect to arise? And what will they look like? And all sorts of other subjects that we could consider the, the, the kind of difficulty that there is in get, getting uh, unanimity, like a, a sense of consensus around the idea. But <laughs> there are some things we don't need to be worried about. His way of salvation is clear, Right? 
That's not obscure. The way of salvation is clear. Believe. Believe. In the Son. And you'll have everlasting life. It's not obscure. Jesus doesn't come with language of salvation and kind of put up these different hoops. And can I jump through them all? No. Believe, friend. Just believe. Understand there's no way to God except through the Son. There's no one who has dealt with your sin except the Son. There's no one that can reconcile you to God except the Son. That's really simple. But we might also say the same is true when it comes to prayer. And our God's willingness to hear our prayers and answer. It is amazing that we read, how many verses there about him hearing and answering prayer? One, two, three, four, five, six, I give you. There are others. In this passage as well. <laughs> and it's, just, it's like screaming at you, just ask, man. Dear woman, don't be doubting about it. Just ask. And there are times where, yes, he, he, he kind of causes there to be a distance between the request and the answer. And we dealt with that last week. At least in part, there's a reminder in that, that he is the superior. We're not giving orders to God. Okay, we're servants. And the master may delay the answer, yet without deny. So let's bring verses 10, verses 5 through 10 together with verses 11 through 13. The point of verses 5 through 10 and the persistence that is encouraged there is not because God is reluctant. We are to show shameless persistence. Because God is willing. I come to him. And like the man, he's my friend. It doesn't matter that it's midnight. It doesn't matter that his children are in bed with him. It doesn't, none of that matters. He's my friend. And, and I'm just going to keep on. And he just will not go away. And it's because he believes his friend will respond. Even with his initial pushback, even with the initial statement that, look, we're all in bed. I can't do this. This is, don't trouble me right now. The door is shut and so on. Yet he's, no, no, this is my friend. I know, he's my friend. What, what's driving him? It's not a sense of his own power. It's a sense of understanding he's my friend. And, and he has the means to help and he will. And the Lord Jesus then says, look, open this up. Understand, it's not just a friend you're coming to. You're coming to a father. And he wants you to ask, seek, and knock. Sometimes you'll be blown away. Before you call, I will answer. Oh, those are glorious, aren't they? It's like, it's like when the, the prayer is kind of percolating in your heart. You haven't even really offered it yet. And the answer comes. <laughs> like, wow. You know, thank you, Lord. Just thinking about that, thinking about, you know, that would be good, and then it's right there. And that happens. It's wonderful. And there are other times where we, we go on a season where we bring the matter before the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's the morning. We're praying, Lord, 
Lord, give me someone to talk to about your son today. Right, give, give me someone to speak to. And you go through the day. Maybe you even forgot that you prayed that prayer. And then you bump into someone, and right there you begin to remember, I asked for that. Hey, <laughs> this is the opening right here. And you start to tell them about the Lord. And so you had to wait a few hours, but, but it came to pass. And he answered the prayer. And you go home and you think, that wasn't just me witnessing. That was a divine appointment and answer to prayer. Praise his name. And there are other things that you'll have to wait weeks for. You'll be praying and you'll be waiting and bringing it before the Lord. Putting it before him faithfully. And then by and by, the answer comes. And then there are other things you may pray for for years. You pray for your children for years. Lord, save their souls. Have mercy. And your persistence is not because God is reluctant. Your persistence all the time is because He is willing. Not just a friend. He is your Father. So you keep persisting. (laughs) You keep asking, you keep seeking, and you keep knocking. Christian, oh, hear it. Weary Christian, stop thinking. Stop imagining that there's no more hope. We read about Elizabeth. Think of all the other examples in Scripture of women that were barren and past the age of bearing children with nothing. Is there any sense of impossibility with God? With nothing do we say it can't be done. Maybe the great burden that you have carried for a long time is going to be answered in a way that just takes you by surprise and even more glorifies his name. Let me end with a quote here from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dealing with revival on that subject, but it applies across the board with prayer. He said on that occasion, I commend to you the reading of biographies of men who have been used of God in the church throughout the centuries, especially in revivals. And you will find this same holy boldness. He goes on to say, Oh, that is the whole secret of prayer, I sometimes think. That's the secret. Holy boldness. Keep pressing. Keep confidently bringing the matter before God. And he says, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, in his exposition of the sealing of the Spirit in Ephesians 1.13, uses a wonderful term. He says, sue him for it. Sue him for it. Think of it. You have the right. The foundation is laid. The covenant is made. The vow has taken place. He is your Father. And He has made these promises. And Lloyd-Jones then goes on to say, Do not leave God alone. Pester Him, as it were, with His own promise. 
Tell him what he has said and he is going to do. End quote. Now that, that gets to the heart of why I was driving home last week. Annoying God. He uses the word pester. Pester him, as it were. We, 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 we broach into language and, and words that we might sort of tread, we have to tread carefully with. But that, that's the sense of it. I can't get any other, I can't walk away with any other conclusion. That we have to have this absolute confidence in our Father and His willingness to answer. And when it seems delayed, we just keep on. We just keep on. Sue him for it. Wow. Lord, you said. Lord, you put in your word. You take these promises. You, you said, Lord. Ah, we're barely scraping the surface. I know this. I know this. Having given us the Holy Spirit, promising that as a token of Him giving Himself, as it were, as, as a reflection of the triune God, making their abode in us and giving us not just stuff but Himself, we haven't even begun to understand how willing He is to overwhelm us with His love. as He lavishes upon us the longings of our heart. Those of you without Christ, if you're here tonight unregenerate, you don't have this, Father. This is the thing. You're walking through life and you're still after the stuff. It's the stuff that matters to you. If only I had the stuff. I use the language every so often of the Hollywood actor from Canada, Jim Carrey, who said, I wish everyone fame and fortune so they can stroke it off the list and get on with their life. It's like you're wasting desiring the stuff. Stop desiring the stuff. Oh, unregenerate person. It's, it's the Lord Jesus. He came that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. He came to satisfy the weary soul. He came to give words and season to them that are weary. He came to give that which that woman who had sought for years standing by that well, relationship after relationship, it's just, it's just always been the wrong person. If I just find the right person, no, no, not in the sense you're thinking. It is Christ you need. It's the water that He gives. It will satisfy so that you will never thirst again. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, beloved, we have all so much further to go in our communion with God, if we have gotten lax, God help us. May He stir your heart. May He stir my heart. 
There are all these exceeding precious promises. Christ has shed his blood and opened up heaven for us. The storehouse is there. The willingness of God is without question. Let us worship and let us ask so that he might do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. If you need the Lord, if you're not saved and you perhaps need a little help understanding the gospel, and you have questions, I invite you to speak to us after the service. I'm glad to open the Word of God with you. Lord, I pray, have mercy on us. We've spent weeks going through these verses and What a tragedy that they don't actually provoke us to take them to heart. God, forgive our complacency and our reluctance to really seek the face of our God. Grant that we would not be slothful in this business. Grant that we would begin to really seek Thee for the very sake of just seeking Thee, just that we might have the Lord. And then that with him will come all, all the other great and wonderful things that bring glory to his name. So Lord, teach this congregation to pray. Begin with me and move across all the elders and the deacons to every member of the church and beyond. Teach us to pray. and Make this a house of prayer for all nations. Magnify thyself in this place. Bless each one. Have mercy on those without Christ. Go with those that Go downstairs, bless the food and the fellowship there. And in all our conversation, may we edify and provoke unto love and good works. So give us strength for this week and do give opportunities to witness of our Lord Jesus to people day by day. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.